Hello, this is Pastor Ken from Alabaster House, and you're listening to the Alabaster House podcast. It's our desire to see every believer equipped with the tools for living and expressing the kingdom of God in the world around them. Be sure to join us online at alabasterhousechurch.com. You can find us at Alabaster House PA on Facebook. And be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast. Also, leave a review if you can. This helps us out in the ratings. We greatly appreciate you listening, and we trust that you will be encouraged and equipped by the Word of God today. All right. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Leviticus. Yes, I said Leviticus. <laughs> Chapter 23. Don't get scared. It's going to be good. I am. Uh, I, I have a respect and an admiration. For Christians who. Um. Uh, study and honor the Jewish feasts, which is what we're going to talk a little bit about today. Uh, my personal opinion is, is that Jesus fulfilled the feasts, so we're not obligated to do them, <laughs> thankfully, because if we did, you all would have been sleeping in a booth since last Sunday. Now... Since last Sunday, I have been sleeping in a magnificent, beautiful house up on the hill that the Lord gave me. Temporarily. Temporarily because Riley's coming home. That's an inside joke between me and Andy. But, yes. If we were to follow all the feasts, uh, they were not enjoyable. You know, there was the feast where you had to afflict your soul for an entire week. Anybody want to go through that feast? No. So I'm just not there. Um, I have respect for the feast because in the feast we see types and shadows of Jesus. I'm just not religious enough to follow them. So you'll have to forgive me and uh, I'm not going to stop you if you want to. I mean, you know, we went to a church one time in South America and they had their ladies covering their heads because of there's a verse in the New Testament that tells women to cover their heads. There's also a verse in the New Testament, by the way, that says men should cover their heads when they pray. But we ignore the stuff for men and just apply it to women. So we were at this church and all the ladies had hair coverings. And, of course, none of ours did. And after service, the uh, one of the elders came up to me and he said, I hope that you won't... Uh, be too critical of us for covering our heads. And I looked back at him and I said, I won't criticize you for covering your head if you won't criticize me for not covering mine. <laughs> so that's kind of how I feel about some of these religious things. You know, there's a section of Christianity out there that believes that we should call Jesus Yeshua because that was his Hebrew name. In fact, that's not the actual pronunciation of the Hebrew, but it's as close as I'm going to get to it. Yeshua, you know, I think it's fascinating. The New Testament was written in Greek, it wasn't written in Hebrew. And as the Holy Spirit was uh, 
overshadowing those men who were writing the New Testament, it's just worthy of notation that he didn't require them to write it in the original Hebrew. It was written in English. So if you want to say Yeshua, I don't have any problem with it. Just like I don't have any problem with those women in South America covering their heads. Just don't judge me if I don't do it. <laughs> right? Greek was the common language of the time. That's why the Bible was written in Greek. But all of the disciples and Jesus himself all spoke Hebrew. They were Jews. But when they wrote the New Testament, it was written in the common language of men for that time. And there was a reason because Jesus is for everybody. Right? So that's just my little thing for right now. And uh, thanks for taking the time to listen to me. So Leviticus chapter 23, I'm just not religious. I'm just not a religious guy. I just can't. I, it's not my blood. I can't say Yeshua. I mean, I, I do, but <laughs> it's like Yahweh. Like I was watching a preacher not too long ago, and every time he referred to God, it was, it was Yahweh. Well, there's one thing I know about that word, and that is that actually the Jewish people rever revered that word so much that they wouldn't say it. They wouldn't say it. They felt like it was taking God's name in vain because that word was so holy and so honored that they wouldn't say it. So we have to be careful about the things we make rules and regulations through religion. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 23, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of... Uh, that's the wrong... Feast. Verse 33, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the children of Israel, saying, the, the 15th day of this seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days, you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day, you shall have a holy convocation and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offering, everything on its day besides the Sabbath of the Lord beside your gifts, beside all your vows and besides all your free will offerings, which you will give to the Lord. Verse 39. Also on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest and on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and the willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts 
of the Lord's. And there you have it. The Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. <laughs> Anybody want to do that? I mean, <laughs> just reading it makes me cringe. It's like, oh. Well, like that's the American version, right? <laughs> we would have everything, every necessity we needed in that, in that little booth. But the reason that I want to talk about this for a moment, I mentioned a scripture last week, and we're going to look at it just one more time this morning, but it's when Jesus says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come after me and drink. And today, literally today, on the Jewish calendar is, this is the eighth day of this feast. Today is the day of the feast that we just read about. Today is the day that it ends. Now the Jewish day, their day isn't from morning to night, it's from night till morning, if I had that right. That's why it says Jesus rose on the third day. We count it differently. If you count it according to our pattern, it was actually like the second day, crucified on Friday, but rose on Sunday. We would count that as two days. They would count it as three. That's kind of insignificant, but it's just the way that they did things. So, so when they say the feast ended on the eighth day, it didn't end in the morning. It ends tonight. It ends tonight at midnight. It's the last time for this feast. And I thought it was significant that just last week we were kind of uh, skimming the surface of this feast that took place in Jesus's time, it took place here in the Old Testament, but Jesus was honoring this feast. He was actually in Jerusalem in the temple uh, for this feast. And you probably noticed near the end when God tells the Israelites, I want you to dwell in booths for seven days. And all of Israel, all of Israel would go out into uh, the open spaces and they would take the leaves of trees and branches and they would construct these booths and for seven days, eight days, they would go and they would live in these booths and it was to be a reminder that God was with them in the wilderness and as God was with them in the wilderness, you'll remember the Bible describes him as a pillar of fire by day and or a, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. In other words, God was hovering over the children of Israel while they were in the desert. In the desert at nighttime, it's freezing cold. So the pillar of fire kept them warm. In the daytime, of course, the sun is just scorching. So God was a cloud by day to shelter his people. So these booths symbolize the sheltering of God while the children of Israel were in the desert place or in the wilderness. But it means even more than that, that the feast is called the Feast of Tabernacles. And the word tabernacle means a dwelling place. Right. God instructed Moses to build what God called a tabernacle. And it was there in this tabernacle where God and Moses would meet face to face. It was the dwelling place of God. And the Ark of the Covenant was housed there, representing the glory of God, the presence of God. And Moses would go into this tabernacle where God was dwelling and meet with him face to face. In, uh, first, uh, or in John chapter 1, 
the book of John, chapter 1, John is describing to us Jesus, and John says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the word tabernacle, that Jesus came and tabernacled among us, that Jesus came to dwell among us. And as he was among us, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me and the fullness and of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace for the law was given through Moses but grace grace and truth came through Jesus Christ and then John says this no one has seen God at any time the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father he has declared him In other words, just as Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. You guys okay? All right. I know you're intently listening. So we're going somewhere today. Just stick with me. So John describes Jesus as coming and tabernacling among us. That Jesus, who was God in the flesh, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came to the earth to tabernacle here. Why? Because Jesus wanted to give us a picture of what God looked like. While Moses was in the tent of meeting, tabernacling with God himself, the Bible says that when he would step out of the tent, his face would glow with the glory of God. So much so that the children of Israel required him to cover up his face. Here, John says, we beheld his glory. In another portion of scripture, it says, as we beheld his glory, we were transformed into the same image from glory to glory. (laughs) And it's here in this place of meeting as we meet with Jesus, as Jesus came and dwelt with his disciples on the earth. His disciples were being transformed into the image of Jesus. But Jesus was there in the image of the Father. So if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And this is all about this dwelling place. This is all about tabernacling before the Lord. Dwelt to build a tabernacle in 1 John chapter 4. The same John, just a different book. John's going to reemphasize this point. And in verse number 12, he says, again, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God, look, abides, dwells in us, and his love has been perfected in us. Next verse. By this we know that we abide with him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. You see where we're going? So this whole idea of tabernacling, this whole idea of the feast of tabernacles, which ends tonight at midnight, 
is this whole idea of meeting with God, finding a meeting place with God and dwelling there with him. And the purpose of the dwelling place is that we are transformed into his image. Not to stay the same. Not to stay the same. Listen, you were not born again to stay the same. That's why it's called born again. <laughs> born again, again. You were, you were born again to become a new creation. You were born again to become a prototype, is what the word actually specifically means in that verse. You were born again to be transformed into a new image, a new man, a new woman, and to not remain the same. Now, what I know is this, is that when you are born again, that initial experience, how many of you know, you don't automatically just attain to everything. Paul described newborn believers as babes, babes in Christ. And the, perp and the point is, don't stay a baby. <laughs> and, and, and you can tell the difference, by the way. Don't stay a baby, but grow up, mature into all things, begin to grow, begin to expand, begin to mature. Oh, every, oh, here we go. You know, this, all the gifts of the Holy Spirit are free, free. The Holy Spirit's just out here. He's like the best gift giver there was. He's just throwing gifts all over the place. Gift of healing. There you go. Gift of word of knowledge, gift of miracles, gift of faith, gift of tongues, gift of interpretation of tongues. He's, he's like me with my wife. Here's a coffee. Next, here's another coffee. Just coffee everywhere. <laughs> just take the coffee. Uh, I don't even bring her flowers. It's just coffee. I mean, what do you want? Do you want something that's going to die in a few days, or do you want coffee? She wants coffee. So she gets coffee, and the Holy Spirit's like that. He's just like, give gifts for everybody. <laughs> There's just one problem. Yeah. <sighs> Giving a gift to someone who's immature is dangerous. The Holy Spirit knows that. He knows that. And so amazing to me, we have all these conferences and charismatic Pentecostal. We've got all these conferences on, you know, spiritual gifts, on healing, on word of knowledge. We've like we've got the whole thing. I just never seen a conference on being more mature. <laughs> I've never seen a conference on character. <laughs> I've never seen a conference on growing up into all things. We want all the gifts. And listen, the gifts are great. I love the gifts. Don't get me wrong. But man, you know, it's like when your children start to drive for the first time. They're only 16. We've got several parents in this room that know exactly what I'm talking about. We're all in the same place. Like handing your kids the key to that 5,000 pound, 300 horsepower, whatever. Here you go. And you know you don't trust them. Because you remember when you were 16. <laughs> oh, Lord, my dad had a Dodge Dakota with the 318 in it. You know, those trucks were so small. There was a mid-sized truck, and those trucks were so light, and they put this V8 in it. And I'm telling you, the thing was fast. And I know how fast it was because I was the one driving it. <laughs> You remember those things. And then here you go. Here's the authority to drive that vehicle. There's just one problem. I need you to be mature. I need you to be mature. And see, gifts are free, but maturity is costly. 
You actually have to walk through some things to learn maturity in Christ. But this comes through the dwelling. This comes through the tabernacling. Go back to 1 John chapter 4, if you will, Corey, in, in verse number 12. Because this is so vitally important to our growth, to our maturity. No one has seen God at any time. And I worry about the people who say they visited heaven and they've seen God. If we love one another, look, if we love one another, God is going to abide in us. He's going to tabernacle in us as we're loving each other. It's not just here at the church, by the way. This is for husbands and wives. This is for fathers and your children. This is for mothers and your children. This is for siblings. If we love one another, God is going to come and tabernacle in us. And as he tabernacles in us, his love is going to be perfected in us. You learn to be mature by loving. And listen, don't think like this. We got this picture of Jesus, like Jesus is all about love and he is. But man, I just remember some stories where it didn't seem like he was real loving. <laughs> the Pharisees, he looks at these guys, your whitewashed tombs full of old dead men's bones. You go great to great lengths to win one convert. And when you win that one convert, you make them twice as much of a son of hell as you are. That's Jesus. That's a quote. Jesus. Jesus is love. He loves. He does love. But there's some things he doesn't love. I was thinking about the Syrophoenician woman last night. Do you remember her? She's not Jewish. She's not an Israelite. But she comes to Jesus because her daughter needs healed. And Jesus says to her, why would I take the children's bread and throw it to dogs? <laughs> Do you understand the context of what Jesus is saying there? Literally, calling a Syrophoenician woman a dog. Listen, that's not nice. And like nobody's there saying, whoa, Jesus, like, whoo, back up a little bit. <laughs> wasn't very nice, Jesus. In fact, that was a little rude. No one does that. Why? Because Jesus does love her. What's he doing? He's testing her heart. He's checking the position and the posture of her heart. Do you really want healed? Did you really come? And as Jesse pointed out, he was literally drawing faith out of the woman. Persistence, the persistent widow. I'm not leaving until I get what I came for. And I love her response. Her response is priceless. She looks back at Jesus and said, but even the dogs eat the bread, the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Right response. That's maturity. And I can tell you what immaturity would have looked like, but you can probably guess. That's maturity. Even in the face of that. I love David, and when David was fleeing from his own kingdom, Absalom, his son, was taking over the kingdom, pursuing David in order to kill him. And David is fleeing from his city, and he comes across this plain, this field, and up on top of the hill is this guy who hates David. I don't remember his name at the time, but he's just calling down blasphemies and curses on David. Curse you, David. You're a dog. You're scum. You're awful. 
And Joab, who was David's mighty man, if you know anything about Joab, like Joab, this guy was, well, he's a lot of things. <laughs> and most of it wasn't good. But he's like, David, let me go up there and chop the head off of this dead dog. But you know what David's response is? Listen, this is maturity. David's response is, how do I not know that God sent him to test my heart? So we're getting all offended. Character and maturity is everything in the kingdom of God. And Jesus was loving. Jesus was love. He did demonstrate love everywhere that he went. But there was also this sharp edge to Jesus. Like if you poke him, he's going to poke you back. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's able to divide bone and marrow. It's able to divide the spirit from the soul. And Jesus is the word made flesh. He's the word that's dwelling among us. He's dwelling among these men and these women. And when they encounter him, they're not just encountering Jesus, but they're encountering the very word of God. And Jesus is going to swing that sword, that sword of the word of God. And he's going to divide soul and spirit. And he's going to divide bone from marrow. And that's what he's doing when he's telling the Pharisees, you're Dead man's bones living in whitewashed tombs. It's not that he's being mean. It's that the, the word of God is sharp. The truth of God sometimes is sharp. And in our society, we don't want anything sharp. We want it smoothed over and made to feel good. And we don't want to be offended about anything. But that's just not how Jesus operates. But the idea of this tabernacling with God is so that... As we love one another with the love of God, because no one has ever seen God, but when we love each other, God is abiding in us. Therefore, God becomes visible through our love one to another. Are you with me? God becomes visible. God was visible in Jesus because Jesus loved everyone around him and therefore the love of God was demonstrated through the life of Jesus. And it's the same for us as we love each other. God's love and God becomes visible through our action of love to each other. And as we learn to love even more, the love of God is then perfected in us in a greater measure. There's a story of a prophet. I don't know if it's true, but the story goes he went to heaven and God asked him a question. He says, have, God said, had you, have you learned to love? And he realized in that moment that he didn't love at a greater capacity. So God brought him back down to the earth to teach him how to love even better. Wouldn't you like a second chance sometimes at loving people? We don't always get it right. But the job of every believer is to learn how to love. And learning how to love takes maturity. Now, I think it was last week we were talking about wells, and I showed you this scripture from John chapter 7 and verse 37, and it says, on the last day, that great day of the feast, now follow me, this is from scripture, this is today, this is this very day in Jesus's time. Jesus is on the last day of the great feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And it's in this moment where Jesus stands up and cries out and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, the fascinating part about this is that according to the, ta- the Feast of Tabernacles, every day during the seven days, it wasn't there in Leviticus, but it's in other parts. But every day the priest would go out of the water gate of the temple. They would go to the pool of Siloam and they would dip in the golden uh, bronze pitcher and they would bring it back to the altar. And when they brought it back to the altar, they would pour out the water upon the altar during the Feast of Tabernacles. And most Bible scholars believe that as the priest was pouring the water out upon the altar, it's in that moment where Jesus stands up and says this, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Listen, that pitcher that the priest was going to pour out eventually was going to become empty. It was going to become an empty container. But Jesus here on the last day of the feast is speaking about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit into our hearts. And as the Holy Spirit is poured out into our hearts, it becomes a river. It becomes a fountain of life springing up inside of us that, according to Jesus, never runs dry. Feast of Tabernacles. The water from Siloam. Pouring it out there upon the altar and Jesus using it as a visual illustration to tell all that would hear what Jesus would was saying is that when the Holy Spirit enters into the life of a believer, it comes becomes a fountain of living water that will never run dry. That was the last day of the feast. Now, there's something else that happens During the Feast of Tabernacles, around the temple, there was these very large golden, uh, what they would call candlesticks. They were really, we would probably refer to it more as like an oil lamp. And the oil that was in the lamp was from fresh pressed olives. It was olive oil. And they would burn these lights around the temple to give light to the whole city. Are you with me? And this was a part of this ritual, this Feast of Tabernacles. And so this is all occurring during this week. The water's being poured out. The candles are being lit. People are existing in these booths. They're coming to the temple and waving these palm branches in worship to God. There's many things that are happening. And over the course of John chapter 8 and John chapter 9, we're still kind of in this winding down of the feast. And in John chapter 8, I want you to listen to the language of Jesus. Because everything that he's saying has to do with this tabernacling. In verse number 19 of chapter 8, Jesus says, Then they, or they asked Jesus, they said to Jesus, where is your father? 
Jesus answered and said, you know, neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And what I'm showing you here is the language of Jesus in reference to the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, verse number 28. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that what and that I do nothing of myself. But as my father taught me, I speak these things and he who sent me is with me. The father has not left me alone, for I always do the things that please him. And verse 31, then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide, look at this. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And the truth shall make you free if you abide in my words. I'm trying to paint a picture for you, and that is we're right at the last day of the feast. Everything's wrapping down. Jesus is in the temple. He's teaching the Pharisees. He's teaching the people. And I want you to notice that all of his language has to do with this concept of tabernacling. And the whole point of tabernacling is to dwell in the presence of God so that the image of God and the character and the nature of God is transferred onto us. So that we no longer look like ourselves, but we begin to look like him. And all the language of Jesus is indicating this. Jesus just spends this week of tabernacling with God in the Feast of Tabernacles. And now all of his language is, listen, it's not me, it's the Father. I'm not doing my own will, I'm doing his will. If you will abide in my word, then the truth will abide in you and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is all about dwelling. It's all about inhabiting. It's all about tabernacling before the Lord. And my encouragement to you this morning is to know that when you tabernacle with, the, with God, not just for eight days, every day. Our tabernacle, our booths are not an eight, you know, it's not one day through eight days. Our booth is every day. That's why we don't follow the feasts anymore, because Jesus has fulfilled them. Now we get to experience them every day. God was with the children of Israel in the wilderness. But how many of you know he's with us right now? God met with Moses face to face in that tent of meeting and Moses' face shone with the glory of God. But how many of you know all of us get to experience that now? Moses was the only one in the children of the children of Israel who knew what it was like to go into that tent and talk to God face to face and see his glory with his own eyes. And the only exception to that is Joshua. But Joshua was a young man and the Bible says he desired what was what Moses was experiencing in the tent of meeting. But all of us in this room have something greater than Moses could ever dreamed of. And that is, we're not going into a tent of meeting to meet with God. God himself has now come into our tabernacle to meet right here with us. It's not a physical location. He's right here inside of you. And this is the Feast of Tabernacles. We don't have to build a booth out in the wilderness anymore to know that God's with us. We are the booth that God is going to come and dwell in. 
And as God comes and dwells in us, the whole purpose is that we are transformed into his image from glory to glory. Amen. Now you see where we're going. (laughs) And see, Jesus goes through this whole week of spending time with God, tabernacling with God. And we're going to back up just a little bit to chapter eight, the beginning of chapter eight, because I want you to see this. You see, religion. Religion reclines. At the table when Jesus is in the house. But relationship breaks open the jar and pours it out before him in worship. I'm telling you, I just I hate religion. I despise it. Jesus said there was only a couple things to be religious about. He said taking care of orphans and widows. I understand religion, and I know that that word means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. When I say I hate religion, it doesn't mean I hate church, clearly. It doesn't mean I hate God, clearly. It doesn't mean I hate things that have to do with God. It means that I hate rules and regulations that men put on to people in order to serve God. I despise it. And that's what these Pharisees are doing. I mean, come on. Jesus, the son of God, is in the is in the temple with them the entire week. And everything that Jesus says, they have to counter it. Everything that Jesus does, they have to condemn it. Every time Jesus opens up his mouth, they're just looking for something to accuse him of. That's religion. The Son of God appears before these religious leaders and they don't even know who He is when they should have known exactly who He was. And so it's in this day. It's the last day. It's, probably, it's actually the ninth day now. The Feast of Tabernacles is over. But we've just gone through it for a whole week. And I just showed you all the things that Jesus said afterwards. And it's in chapter 8 at the very beginning. And you know the story in verse number two. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees, here we go again, brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the middle, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear them. So they continued asking him. He raised himself up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down to write on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, just him and the woman. Now, I've said all of that to get to this point. 
When you tabernacle with God, when God is your dwelling place and God is dwelling inside of you, the whole purpose of it is so that when you're faced with circumstances, situations, when you're faced with people, you respond the way God would respond. Chris and I have been married for 22 years. I know her a little bit better today than I did yesterday. (laughs) But I'm still learning. Are you with me? And it's the same thing with God. The more you spend time with Him, the more you get to know Him. And listen, it is never about knowing, it's never about getting to know about God. It's about knowing God. This is the whole purpose of booths and tabernacles. I don't just want knowledge. I want relationship. I don't want rules and regulations. I want to know your heart. And here we have a group of men, Pharisees. They know about God. Everything about him, as a matter of fact. This is why they bring him, the woman who's caught in the very act of adultery, because they know about God and they know what Moses' law requires. And that was, this woman deserves to die. And they're coming to Jesus. But can I say they came at the wrong time? Because Jesus just spent a week dwelling with God in the tabernacle. And now they're going to get the revelation that Jesus has of the Father. Listen, no one needs a piece of your mind. And I certainly don't. No one needs a piece of your mind. If Jesus was going to give this woman a piece of his mind, guess what she would have got? She would have got a stone. She deserved it, according to the law. No one needs a piece of your mind. What they need is a piece of the heart of God. And the only way you're going to get that piece of the heart of God is by spending time with the heart of God. By dwelling with him and allowing him, allowing yourself to become his dwelling place. And it's just it just intrigues me that it's right after the Feast of Tabernacles. It's right after this time of dwelling with God. It's right after this time of Jesus talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit and rivers of living water, living water flowing out of us. It's right on the heels of that day when they decide to bring him this adulterous woman. And we all know how Jesus responds. They bring him to accuse and everybody, you know, we all want to know what did Jesus write in the sand? It's the great mystery of the New Testament. What did Jesus write in the sand? And I'm not here today to tell you exactly what he wrote. I have some ideas. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 13 is one of them. But according to the law of Moses also, when a man and a woman were caught in adultery together, because it takes two, both the man and the woman were supposed to be brought to the judge, supposed to be brought to the high priest. And as they were brought to the high priest, then both of them would have been judged accordingly. Isn't it fascinating? They only bring him the woman. <laughs> and if you study the Feast of Tabernacles in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, it's fascinating that after, right after the instruction for the feast comes this whole section 
of judgment and righteousness. And God says in Deuteronomy, just after the instructions on the Feast of Tabernacles, do not pervert justice. And it's right after the Feast of Tabernacles that these men are perverting justice. And Jeremiah 17 and verse 13 says this. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Look at this. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. What did Jesus say on the last day of the feast? Anyone who's thirsty, come to me. And when you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again, but inside of you will become a fountain of living water. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth. These men, their hearts are far from God and they bring Jesus, this adulterous woman. And what does he do? He stoops down and he writes something in the earth. Was it their names? I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that in that moment, Jesus was responding with the heart of the father. These men were responding through religious rules and regulations and law. She deserves death. Jesus, what are you going to do? And he stoops down and he writes in the sand. He writes in the dust of the earth. And as he does, the Bible says that one by one, they all left from the oldest to the last. And Jesus was left alone there. And the woman was standing in the midst. And Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman. And he says to her, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? Has no one found you worthy of punishment? Has no one found you worthy of judgment? And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus says in all the verses that we've already read, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. I only do the father's will. I'm only going to do what I've seen my father do. I'm going to represent my father because I've been with him. And can I tell you that in this moment, it's not just what Jesus would have done. It's exactly what the father would have done. The woman caught in the very act of adultery and Jesus himself, the son of God, the sinless, spotless lamb won't condemn her. Oh, there's so much more. Let me just wrap it up. But in chapter 9, we're still on the heels of the day of the, of the tabernacle, the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's on in chapter 9 that Jesus is passing by and he sees a man who was born blind from birth. And his disciples say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says this, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. And then Jesus says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. The night is coming when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Remember the candlesticks I talked about? In fact, what did Jesus say at the end of the story with the adulterous woman? In verse number 12, he says, I am the light of the world. There's the candlestick still burning from the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus is saying, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Not only is it a fountain of life, a river of life, but it's also the light of life. 
And here Jesus is encountering the man who was born blind. Uh, he's going to heal him. In fact, he spits on the ground. <laughs> It'd be funny if you came forward for, for healing and, and, and you heard, <laughs> right? That's what Jesus did. I'm telling you, he wasn't afraid to offend people. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. But I want you to see this in verse number seven. He said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. This is the same pool where the priest would go and dip the pitcher in and bring it to the altar and pour it out. It's the same. It's the same water that Jesus was referenced when he said, if anyone's thirsty, let him come after me. It's the same pool. It's the same water. It's the same Holy Spirit if you will. And as the man washes his face with that water from the pool of Siloam, it's there that he receives his healing. And there's a big story that goes, but for time's sake, we're just going to skip ahead. But the, the Pharisees have a really hard time with this. And at the end of the story, Jesus says in verse 39, for judgment, I have come into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may be made blind. In verse 41, Jesus says to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. And what Jesus is referring to here is the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. Jesus heals a blind man. They don't want to receive it. They don't want to believe it. They don't want to believe in Jesus. And Jesus talk, starts talking about their spiritual blindness. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. What you see is what you become. And as we tabernacle with God, as we are there in his presence, as we're dwelling with him, we're not only hearing his heart, but we're also seeing. No one has seen God at any time. But if the love of God dwells within us, then God abides in us. A visible example of what God looks like. But can I tell you, it's only in spending time with him that you're transformed. It's only in beholding his glory that transformation in your heart and in your life comes. Will you stand this morning? I want to encourage you to come out at six o'clock tonight. The truth is we're entitling Holy Spirit Night and we really have no agenda other than spending time in the presence of God and just letting the Holy Spirit do whatever he wants to do. That's the, that's the agenda. <laughs> but I know it's going to be good because anytime we come together and seek God, he shows up. And I know people are going to be touched, healed, encouraged. So I want to, I want to encourage you to come out tonight. But right now in this moment, I just want to allow the Holy Spirit to just come and examine our hearts and our lives.
Listen, we don't always respond the way Jesus responded. I'll be the first one to admit there's times where I've, I've lost my patience. I've lost my temper. I've not said what God would have said. I've not done what Jesus would have done. And all of us in this room are in the same category. But I don't want to stay there. Because I want to become more like Jesus. I want to respond the way Jesus would respond. I want to do what the Father would do. I want to say what the Father would say. And the only pathway there is to tabernacle with God. To allow God to dwell in our hearts. And for us to dwell in Him. So today I'm right here among you and saying, God, I need more of you. I need more of you. I need more of your presence. I need more of your Holy Spirit. I need to know your heart in a greater capacity. I need to hear your voice with greater clarity. I need to know you to know you. To know you deeper. If you're here today and you'd say, yeah, that's me too. That's the cry of my heart. I want to know God more. I want to know His heart. I want to know what He would do. I want to know how He would respond. I want to tabernacle with Him. I want Him to dwell in me and I want to dwell in Him. If that's you, would you just lift your hand? Just keep it lifted. Just pray this with me. Father, here I am. Your temple. Your dwelling place. Your tabernacle. And I'm asking you to come live inside of me, but also live through me. Let me know your heart. Let me hear your voice. Let me see what you're doing. And let me hear what you're saying. I want to know you more. I want to know you more. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. 